Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text. Chapter 32, Out of the Fire. I'm not going. I don't need the hospital wing. I don't want... He was gibbering as he tried to pull away from Professor Tofty, who was looking at Harry with much concern after helping him out into the entrance hall with the students all around them staring. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Sultan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. A couple of announcements before we get started. You can see the women of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text on May 14th in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then you can see me in London on June 18th. And then you can see moi en Paris on June 22nd. Don't miss out. All of the dates are on harrypottersacredtext.com. Casper, as you know, I grew up on the North Ridge of the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, California. The town was called North Ridge. Very creative. And in order to drive to like my grandparents or anywhere sort of in the valley, we would drive south on Tampa Boulevard. And whenever we would drive south on Tampa, we would pass a school called Alfred B. Nobel Middle School. And one day I was in the car with my dad and we'd pass this like a thousand times. But today was the day I decided to be curious. And so I turned to my dad and I was like, Alfred B. Nobel, like the Nobel Peace Prize. And my dad was like, yeah, also Alfred B. Nobel is in like the inventor of TNT dynamite. And I was like, what? Are those two things related? And he was like, oh, yeah, he felt guilty about the fact that he had caused so much destruction and death in his life that he founded the Nobel Committee and endowed the prize. And my mind was blown. 
And I think what my dad wanted me to do was not just think of the Nobel Prize as a legacy, but as an attempt at redemption and therefore point to the fact that there was something that needed to be redeemed, right? This isn't just an act of generosity. Some guy named Nobel didn't just decide, oh, I'm pro-peace and I have all this money even though I've spent my whole life doing peaceful things, right? He was a war profiteer. That's why he had so much money. And so I'm interested in that in that aspect of redemption, of can you redeem yourself even with grand gestures when you have caused such great atrocities? Yeah, I feel like I only found out about that connection, you know, maybe in college or something. It's just a whole hidden part of history that certainly the Nobel Prize Committee doesn't talk about. So that'll be an interesting question, especially in this chapter. I do think that we see some, like, irredeemable things in this chapter. Even if Umbridge started a, like, Umbridge Peace Prize, I don't (laughs) think she would be redeemable after this chapter, right? Well, let's remind everyone what happens with our little 30-second recap. Yes, well, it's your turn to remind people first. This is a long chapter. I would be happy to go half-seas with you. That sounds amazing. Okay, so you go as far as you can, and then I'll try to pick up the rest. I'll just describe the opening page. (laughs) If you could just read the first three sentences. I'm not going. I don't need the hospital wing. (laughs) Jerk. (laughs) Okay. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry's freaking out because he just saw Sirius in great danger as being tortured by Voldemort. So he, he um, runs to uh, find McGonagall in the hospital wing, but she's not there. She's gone to um, St. Mungo's and Madame Pomfrey's like, I know, isn't it shocking? I would resign in protest. Um, and then he goes to find Hermione and Ron because then they can help him because there's nobody of the order left in the building. But, and so Hermione's like, no, that makes no sense. It's not logical. And then Harry's like, yeah, but what about Ron's dad? And so Ron's like, okay, swayed. And then they make a plan to have distractions and Luna and Ginny show up and then then they go to Umbridge's office. I think that that might literally be the halfway point. (laughs) All right. Well, will you tell the second half? Yes, of course. 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Boom. Flu powder in the fire. Creature, is Sirius here? No, nobody from the Order is here. Oh, okay. So they then Umbridge comes into the office with the entire Inquisitorial squad and is like, what are you doing in here? Who are you talking to? And they're like nearly killing Neville and they're like, we're not going to tell. And so Umbridge gets Snape and Snape comes into Harry's like, oh my God, there is somebody else from the Order. And Snape is like, no more serum." And um, Harry's like, Patfoot's in trouble. And Snape goes off and then Hermione comes up with the best lie ever and is like, we were trying to talk to Dumbledore and I can show you where the weapon is. The weapon is in the forest. But no real tears. So good. So Vanessa, let's dig into this theme of redemption. Where did you see it at first in this chapter? So I've been on this journey with Umbridge where I've really been trying to see myself in her or see see her in me, whatever. Because I do think that there is an argument to be made that if Umbridge thinks that Harry is really lying and is really like warmongering, for no reason, and all of these resources are going to go to a war that doesn't need to be fought, then, like, you do desperate things in order to, like, shut that child up, right? And in this chapter, you find out that, Mm. like, that is not the journey that she is on. And this is when you find out that she framed him with the Dementors and that she is not only willing to torture him, but is sort of excited to torture him. I mean, she's about to use the Cruciatus curse and is halfway through the word before Hermione kind of breaks out into her fake tears to stop her. Right. We see that there are no boundaries to what she's willing to do. 
And the one thing that we sort of had respect for her for, which we talked about earlier, was that she was evil but ordered. And now it's like, you're not even ordered. Because she was never sanctioned to bring out those dementors, right? She's now going to be breaking actual laws, not just school rules. She's breaking the law by using one of the unforgivable curses. And she broke a law earlier by sending those dementors after Harry. Exactly. So until now, I've... I've obviously not condoned her behavior, but I guess I've been living in this gray space of like, could she be a redeemable character? And I really wanted to look closely to see like maybe there is like a redemptive element to her in the way that I think we could argue that there are some redemptive elements to Wormtail or right like there are moments of humanity. And this I was like, that is it. You have crossed a line. So I'm wondering what it is. When does something become actually unredeemable? Well, it's so interesting because, I mean, even the language kind of gives it away, right? It's an unforgivable curse. Like, it feels like this is a line that if you cross this, then then there is no redemption, right? You have gone too far. It would be very arguable to say that she had already crossed that line by torturing Harry. And I think that would be an easy case to make. But totally. I am not saying that, like, it was excusable that she did child abuse. I'm just saying that if we're following... Following her logic, right. although I completely don't agree with the tactics, I could at least intellectually justify the argument that she was making to herself. And I think this is maybe the difference between Umbridge and Nobel in that we don't see any evidence from the little that you and I know of Nobel that he wanted war, right? That he actively wanted violence, destruction. He was working on a a chemistry problem. He was working on a scientific problem. Now, did he realize that it would have implications? Yes. When the fact came around and he saw how his invention was being used, did he feel guilt? No doubt. But he was an inventor. He had over 500 patents. Exactly. And so I think that's the difference between, for me, of what makes it redeemable or not. With Umbridge, we see none of that. You know, if she had stuck to her guns of saying, you know, I am enforcing the rules. If I want to do something that's not allowed in the rules, I'm going to go to the ministry and get an educational degree, which then gives me the power to apply these new rules. Again, that would give me some sympathy to that idea of of kind of ordered but evil. But now we're seeing that she is completely willing to break the rules. She is completely just out for herself, her own ambition, wanting to carry favor with the ministry. For me, she's become irredeemable. Do we think that she could start the Umbridge Peace Prize and like involve herself in some sort of reconciliation process? And I don't think she would, but... This is pure evil. Do we think that pure evil is ever redeemable? So that's such a good question, because for me, it's worth exploring on two levels. One is redemption with you and me, the readers, the characters in the book, right? There's a a kind of a, a horizontal or social redemption. And that's very, very hard to do, I think. But then I do love this more kind of theological idea of can you be redeemed in the eyes of God, right? Or, or in, you know, something more mysterious, something bigger than us. And then this is where I, I feel compelled that there is a love so big that is beyond a human capacity for love and forgiveness that is all encompassing so that whatever you have done, you are still worthy of love. And I, like my love is at zero for, at this point for Umbridge, but I like the idea that there is some other love somewhere for her that she could be transformed by. No, I mean, that's my instinct, too. I have no faith that Umbridge is going to do anything to be asking for that level of redemption. And so I'm just so skeptical, nor do I want to think that anybody is irredeemable. Right. 
You know what this is reminding me of? Twice a year in England, there's a list of names released, people who get given awards by the state, by the Queen. Um, They receive an MBE or a CBE or an OBE. And it stands for Member of the British Empire. And this whole tradition comes from people who were serving the British Empire, this colonialist, you know, murderous, horrific institution that still, to some extent, the British economy is built on today. And there's always this kind of interesting side conversation about who has refused an MBE, because it's this great award, right? You're going to be called Dame or Sir, right? It's a massive status symbol. And people are awarded for humanitarian work, for volunteering, for science advancement, for, you know, sport, good things, all sorts of cool stuff, which in itself, you're like, yeah, you deserve an award. Go get them. And I have always wondered, let's say I run the fastest mile in the world and was given an MBE, would I accept it? Because, hello, wouldn't it be lovely? I'd get to meet the Queen. It would be so much fun. And at the same time, would I, by accepting that honor, would I be somehow part of trying to redeem this colonialist narrative of empire? And frankly, like, I don't know. I don't know what I'd do. I want to say that I wouldn't. But then I feel like it'd be so much fun. (laughs) It wouldn't just be so much fun. You can do so much good with it. Right. I would hope. Let's say you did it for charitable work. Right. Then suddenly you're given a whole new platform to talk about your charitable work. And you're raising money for whatever cancer treatment you're working on or, or something like that. But it is that question of how much toxicity do we allow in without harming the body that we're trying to protect in the first place? If you accept an honor like that, which upholds this, you know, institution that we disagree with of empire, unless you're also telling the other side of the story about the deaths and the starvation and all the other things that were inflicted by empire, it's unredeemed for me. Like, you're only telling part of the story which only inflicts more wrong. Right. So that let's say that Umbridge had a complete change of heart and creates an award. It's like for 50 years, people should be going up and saying no thank you to that award. Yeah. Or in their acceptance speech saying let me list the crimes that you committed. Or, you know, let's say she she creates a scholarship program for centaurs. There has to be some acknowledgement of the wounds that were inflicted before we kind of put on the healing balm. But for now, I'm just like really comfortable in my like, wow, Umbridge, okay. Like you are just sort of a monster. And some people behave in a way and like through getting used to behaving in certain ways, turn themselves into irredeemable monsters. And I really think it's important for, like, my humanity to believe that on some cosmic level they are still redeemable. But Umbridge in this moment is representative to me of those, like, Stalin, Pol Pot, like, nope, you've just become a monster. Oh, my goodness, this is just striking me now. The thing that really I find most irredeemable is not even her own actions, but is how she enables the inquisitorial squad and not just enables, but encourages them. Oh, yeah. She's she's reared a child army. But like, really, this is this is Hitler Youth. And we always look at Slytherins and say like, oh, Snape and the head of house. But it isn't Snape that turns them into this. It's Umbridge. You know, in the seventh book, it's the Caros. And so what we see happening to Draco in this scene, what we see happening to Crabbe and Goyle, That's the bit I think is even more unforgivable, is that she has made children into her own image. If Snape didn't come in, Crab would have murdered Neville. Yeah, he is purple at the throat. I mean, he is being throttled. 
So I think you led us beautifully to Snape. Mm. And I am really surprised by how redeemed Snape is in my eye in this moment. I mean, first of all, he walks this, like, beautifully fine line of, like, I don't know whether or not he really was out of serum, but he pretends so thoroughly to only do things on behalf of the order while maintaining his, like, I hate Harry Potter thing, right? He's like, I'm out of serum. There would be so much paperwork if Longbottom died, <laughs> right? Like, there's that. And so— It was the first time that I was like, oh, does he have to treat these kids like he hates them in order to stay in character in moments like this? Well, it's interesting to me that he is the last person of the order at Hogwarts at this point. And I think that's why we see him behave in the way that he does, because if he doesn't, everything falls apart. And most of the time, there's Dumbledore, there's McGonagall, there's these, you know, Lupin at some points. And so he can be distasteful and actually not actively helpful on campus at all, because where he is helpful is as this double agent uh, with Voldemort supporters. But now he's the only one there. And so he has to perform these life-saving duties, right? Including, I am sure, lying about the Veritas serum, telling Crab let go of Neville, at least not that hard. He is literally going to tell the order about Harry leaving with, with Ron and Hermione and the rest of the gang. Now, it's an interesting question that you raise. Is he pretending the rest of the time to be so despicable to the kids? I don't think so. I think he genuinely doesn't like them. I don't think he is pretending to dislike them. I think he genuinely dislikes them. I don't want to say he's like method acting. <laughs> this is a giant Slanislavski performance. <laughs> right. Like, And I don't think that's what it is. And I don't think he's entirely redeemed. And I think he tortures these children for years. And I still hate Snape, if nothing else, just out of sheer loyalty to my own idea. I hate Snape because it's fun to hate Snape. (laughs) But I just, like, can't imagine how hard it is to be a double agent. And so, like, walking through the world, like, really hating them and really convincing yourself that you hate them so that even when you have to save their lives, the rest of the world doesn't notice that what you're doing is saving their lives. Right. Suddenly I was just like, oh— It seems like his natural instinct is to dislike them, and it might actually be strategically helpful for him to fan that flame rather than try to rein it back. Yeah, I saw such a link for the first time between Hermione and Snape in this chapter. Ooh, say more. Well, just in the sense that Hermione does the same thing. She is the last resort just as Umbridge is casting the Cruciatus spell. She kind of does this fake breakdown. And in the same way as Snape uses, you know, her words and her brains to divert the whole situation and get what she needs. It was the first time, you know, we always talk about Hermione being a Ravenclaw in Gryffindor's house. This, I was like, she's totally a Slytherin. Like she is cunning. And the other thing that connects both Hermione and Snape in this chapter is, you know, Harry's really resenting Hermione's unwillingness to just like run and go to the Department of Mysteries. But by the end of the book, when we know that this was all a trick, she is really vindicated. And, you know, her resistance is redeemed in the same way that Snape for so long, you know, through through all the seven books, is seen at least as complicated, if not as horrific and yet to some extent again is redeemed. And so they're both pushing back against Harry and ultimately proved right. So that that pattern was really interesting to me. Right. Like being right in the end is slightly redeeming, even when we don't want it to be, right? Like when I take my dog to the vet and she's like, you're a monster. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't have ticks because of me. Mm. Like I'm right. And that redeems me in the eye of 
St. Francis. <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Vanessa, I have another place in the text that I was interested in exploring this theme of redemption, and I'm not 100% clear on what I think about it. Do tell. But we meet Creature again. Harry puts his face into the fireplace and like calls out for Sirius. And Sirius doesn't answer, but he hears some scuffling in the background and there comes Creature. And Creature says, first of all, like Sirius isn't here. You know, I want to go talk to my mistress. I feel great. And then says he's never coming back from the Department of Mysteries. So Creature knows what is happening and we find out later why. But part of me was like, you know what, Creature? I don't blame you. He's been treated so badly for so long by Sirius that for him, you know, we have praised Dobby for liberating himself from his evil masters. Can we not say the same to some extent about Creature, that he is helping himself get free by ridding him of his master? So your question is, right, is Creature redeemable even though he does this horrible thing? Yeah, like, can we blame him? I don't know if we can blame him. I do think Creature redeems himself later in the books, right? He changes his behavior and, like, really opens his heart to the trio and takes care of them a lot at the beginning of book seven. I think there's a false equivalency between Dobby and Creature. Dobby does a lot to free himself. Creature is setting up murder. Like, the Malfoys are, like, sad without Dobby, But he didn't murder them to get away. Would we have been okay with him setting up the murder of Lucius Malfoy to get free? Yeah. So I, you know, like I do think violence is sometimes the answer, right? Like I think that if you've been kidnapped and held hostage, like you do what you got to do to get out of there. 
and like I think the elf system is like a system of oppression. Would I blame a slave who murdered their abusive slave master to run away? Probably not. Like super, super not. You're not going to get me to say on tape. Good for creature for helping murder serious though. <laughs> no, but I, I think and I think there's a difference between condoning and something being redeemable or at least understandable. I don't know if they're, they're two different things. Yeah, I definitely get why he does it. I would probably do the same thing. I'm by nature a spiteful person. I also think it's horrible. And then the other thing I want to say is that there are no good actions in such an evil situation. Right. Like, everybody is making compromises. Hermione is leading umbrage into violence. Like, everybody is behaving monstrously because they have to because something truly evil is like a black hole that's pulling all this in. And so in this broken, broken situation, it's all just degrees of awful. Yeah. Is there anywhere else in this chapter where you see this theme of redemption? Yeah, like Ron's been bugging me lately. And in this chapter, he really does redeem himself to me. He's like earnestly trying to discern who is right, Harry or Hermione. And he's not just like being blindly loyal to one of them for selfish reasons. And I would think it would be very easy for him to be super loyal to Harry because the same type of dream in Harry saved Ron's father's life. And so I can imagine him being like, God, Hermione, it saved my dad's life. Why don't you believe, you know? Right. And instead, he is like really hearing Hermione also and seems genuinely like tortured by what to do. And I just see him as is not being motivated by ego at all, but as having grown and changed and not being blindly loyal, but trying to figure out what's right and act responsibly and reasonably. And I just think that that's the gorgeous thing about young people. You know, on the first day of school with my 18-year-olds, I set an expectation with them that they are going to mess up, like it is fine. And on the first mistake, they get 100% redemption that I'm allowed to be mad for 24 hours, but <laughs> that after 24 hours, we just start fresh. It's like it didn't happen. And then it's only the second, third time that we're like, oh, now trust is being broken. Like, what's actually going on here? Usually the way that they mess up is they throw parties that they're not supposed to throw or like are just like dumb, you know. But once it was very personal, a student had a new pair of glasses, and I was like, oh, those are cute. And she was like, oh, try them on and sort of put them on my face. And this other student said to me, oh, those make you look more Jewish. I mean, the the oxygen actually got sucked out of the room (laughs) because everybody inhaled at once, and it just, like, got so quiet, and all eyes were on us. And he just, like, kept trying to apologize, and, and I was like, nope, I get to be mad for 24 hours. And in 24 hours, you shall be redeemed. And, like, we start fresh. And what's amazing is I obviously remember that story. But he and I, like, became friends. And he's graduated. And we, like, keep in touch. And I have nothing but positive feelings toward him. And I just think that there's something beautiful about being young in the way that you're not routinized in the way that you respond to things. And he just was like, oh, I'm never going to mess up like that again. And Ron in this moment is just like, I'm not going to act based on my ego again. I'm going to, like, really try to listen. Well, all the loyalties. I mean, usually he's, like, either mad with Harry because he's jealous or he's frustrated with Hermione because she won't share homework. Or there's, like, these very small-scale things that make him shift from one to the other. And in this case, yeah, he's he sees the truth in both experiences and is not a driving factor in which 
direction to go. He kind of follows Hermione and Harry to figure out whatever they negotiate and then is an active participant in helping make it happen by trying to distract Umbridge to leave her office. That's interesting. I just think there's something beautiful in young people redeeming themselves so quickly, learning quickly and instituting those changes quickly and being like, oh, I'm never going to make that mistake again. And then really like never making the mistake again. And the only reason I think it gets harder as we get older is that whatever mistakes we make, we've been making for longer. So they're more <laughs> of a habit. But it just it made me love Ron and see so much potential in him. I think as he gets feedback and is in relationship with good people for longer, he's going to turn into a wonderful young man. As indeed he does. It's time for our spiritual practice. And this week we're starting Sacred Imagination. And just as a reminder, this comes from the Ignatian spiritual exercises. So it's a a Catholic tradition whereby one imagines oneself into a narrative. So in usually a gospel story to try and have a kind of multi-sensual experience to notice what you see, what you hear, what you feel, what you taste and touch as a way to better understand traditionally what's what's happening in the Bible, but in this case, to get an insight into the characters and into the scene that I'm going to read out loud. And so it's a relatively short passage, and there's lots of characters. So if you can, close your eyes and find a good place where you can just be quiet for a moment. And this scene is in Umbridge's office, and we're going to see the team who are trying to reach Sirius pinned to the wall by the inquisitorial squad. There was silence in the office, except for the fidgetings and scufflings resulting from the Slytherin's effort to keep Ron and the others under control. Ron's lip was bleeding onto Umbridge's carpet as he struggled against Warrington's half-Nelson. Ginny was still trying to stamp on the feet of the sixth-year girl who had both her upper arms in a tight grip. Neville was turning steadily more purple in the face while tugging at Crab's arms, and Hermione was attempting in vain to throw Millicent Bulstrode off her. Luna, however, stood limply by the side of her captor, gazing vaguely out of the window as though rather bored by the proceedings. Harry looked back at Umbridge, who was watching him closely. He kept his face deliberately smooth and blank as footsteps were heard in the corridor outside, and Draco Malfoy came back into the room, holding open the door for Snape. So, Vanessa, who were you in this room filled with people, and what did you notice? I was Ginny, like, constantly trying to stomp on someone's feet because it's like, eventually maybe I'll find it, right? Like, at least it's not a totally wasted effort. And then I also, as Ginny, am, like, watching my brother's blood drip onto the floor and I'm like watching Umbridge just watch Harry as so much violence is being ensued like really you're just letting this happen and I also as Ginny got mad at Luna like girl pay attention we're in emergency mode here I just had so much anger and was like not gonna stop stomping and was noticing like what the heck is happening what about you oh it's so juicy i found myself actually as luna my thinking is that 
Stamping and wriggling is not helping. It's only making it worse the more you react because then they're going to hold you tighter. Like at this point, the person who's holding me back is like holding me, but not super violently. I'm not bleeding. I'm not struggling. But the the thing that struck me was <laughs> Luna doesn't know what happened and why. I mean, she and Ginny were kind of part of the operation to, you know, make sure no one walked into the corridor to give space for Harry and Hermione. But she really has no idea of the big picture. It made me think of the First World War, you know, soldiers who are at the front who are like, why are we here? Like, what is this for? People who who are part of a bigger effort without really being told what it's for and why. So I also didn't have a huge amount at stake. So I wasn't going to make it worse. Yeah, but the point of wriggling is that like maybe you can change the circumstance. Yeah, I guess. Like never stop wriggling. I think I was too interested in looking at the scene of like what's going on. Like I was yeah. I was curious as much as anything else. And I was kind of just confused. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm like fight to the last second, right? Because you never know when like one of your kicks is going to make it to the balls. Yeah, and I think the fact that for Ginny, Ron, her brother is there changes everything. For, for Luna, I mean, these are her friends, absolutely, and we know how much that matters to her. I just don't think she sees the value of making it worse. Totally. Yeah. No, I really appreciate you helping me see Luna. I find her so frustrating in this <laughs> chapter. She tells Harry... You're really being quite rude right now. I'm like, Luna, snap into action here. Your, like, peace and love vibe is, like, not appropriate for this moment. She, like, really annoys me in this chapter. And so I'm very grateful for you, like, bringing us into her head. It, it makes it all the more remarkable to me that she would then go right. to the Department of Mysteries, right? If If there isn't something huge at stake for you personally to still go on like such a risky move and ultimately be the person who figures out the transport, as we will see. Right. And it's not like she's drafted. It's not World War One, right? right. Like she volunteers. She's choosing to go. Yeah, yeah. that is interesting. I mean, the, the other thing that I took away from this scene is just the chaos. Yeah. I mean, the number of bodies in this office. Umbridge is in control, but also not quite. And we're going to see how Hermione, I think, is able to manipulate her by using the fact that the Inquisitorial squad is there, right? At first, she's like, okay, obviously, I'm going to bring my guards. But then Hermione's like, well, would you want everyone to see it? And she looks at Draco's face and sees his, like, hunger to kind of have access to this weapon. And she realizes, like, oh, actually, I can't trust everyone here. And so I'm I'm thinking about how this confusion, the latent energy and violence that's in the room actually shifts Umbridge's trust of the whole school situation. And her authority is the reason that all of these inquisitorial squad people can have control, right? They've taken the wands of the Gryffindors and Ravenclaw in the room. There's explicit condoning of the violence. Like, it's not just that all the Slytherins are bigger than everybody else. It's also that there has been an authority that is condoning them, holding them down. Absolutely. Yeah. It's also worth noting that Neville is now in the room. He was never part of the plan, but he defended Ginny when she was attacked. And so we're already seeing Neville step up and involve himself willingly without anyone, you know, drafting him or asking him to be involved. So also just a little note in Neville's development. There. I know. If I blessed men, Neville in this chapter, man, just jumping in front of things. 
take me. Well, he is like wriggling to the nth degree. He is like. He's the one getting most restricted. And he's disrupting things, even if he doesn't know it's the right thing. But like, at least he's taking action. And like, he's the anti-Luna in this moment. And again, we love both Neville and Luna. But I'm just more of a Neville. Well, and also there's a nice parallel between Harry and Neville, right? Harry is jumping in feet first into this whole plan. And Neville's just done the same on a much, much smaller scale. But this prophecy that connects them also is in this chapter revealing a connection. Yeah. Well, thank you for picking such a juicy passage, Casper. Thanks for um, sacred imagination-inging with me. <laughs> Do you mean imagining? That's the word I'm looking for. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week's voicemail is from Leah Holleran. Hi, Sacred Text team. This is Leah calling from Philadelphia. I was just listening to your episode on Chapter 26, particularly the part about Harry's occlumency lessons with Snape, and what you were talking about with the back of Harry's mind not being the safe place that it had once been. And I've been noticing a lot in this reading of the fifth book how much Harry has to struggle with this feeling of not trusting himself. And that's something that I can relate to pretty strongly um, with not feeling like I can trust myself. Um, I'm currently in recovery from an eating disorder, and it has been a struggle to not only feel like I 
can't trust myself to do what is best and healthiest for my body, but also just that I don't even know what is best and healthiest for my body, that I can't trust my own judgment on what is enough to eat, what's not enough, what's too much, what am I putting into my body. And then this feeling that what I see when I look in the mirror isn't even something I can trust, that it's an illusion and it's not accurate, that what I'm seeing is not what the rest of the world is seeing. And in trying to, you know, kind of come to terms with this, I've found a really fantastic resource in talking to my support system, in meeting with a therapist and a dietitian. And I think that that's kind of similar to what Harry finds when he finally opens up to his friends, when when Ginny says you don't know if you're being possessed. You can't tell what's really going on with you. Well, I can help you. I can look from the outside and tell you, no, you're not being possessed. And so having that ability to trust a support system when you can't trust yourself is so useful. And then I think it's it goes even further with Harry's journey that he eventually manages to kind of distinguish when he's feeling Voldemort's feelings and when he's feeling his own. And that's actually been another really useful tool that reminded me of my own recovery, where uh, separating myself and who I am, my own thoughts, from my eating disorder and being able to start, at least, to distinguish when, oh, that that feeling of guilt or that voice that's telling me to restrict and not eat anything, that's not me. That is my eating disorder talking to me. That's my Voldemort. And I don't have to listen to it. I don't have to obey it. And I don't have to feel what it's telling me to feel. Um, so it was really, really cool to see that in this reading of, of the book. And thanks for listening. Leah, I am so shaken by your voicemail. I think it's profound what you're saying, that we can't trust the Voldemort in our head when we think about ourselves in, in this way, whether it's, you know, our bodies, our minds, w- w- whatever it is. I think it's an incredible sacred reading. And I'm so grateful for you sharing this. Also, can I just say, like, our listening community is incredible. Like, it's ridiculous that it's you and me in front of the microphone. I feel like... It's inc- like generally the voicemails that we receive are so profoundly insightful. And it's sometimes a shame that we can only do one in an episode, which is why we do our post. But Leah, thank you for that. I'm going to take that away and use that for myself. You know, oh, wait, that's a Voldemort thought. You know, like, oh, wait, that's what Voldemort would be putting into my brain. I, I just think that's beautiful. Thank you. I echo all of that. Leah, thank you so much for that really exceptional, exceptional voicemail. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. And I feel like, you know, there's so many characters, first of all, that are in this chapter. But who do you want to bless? I would like to bless Jenny Weasley. Because as much as I said, like, Luna's response to Harry being in emergency mode annoyed me. Jenny sort of, like, threads that needle where she and Luna are walking by. They hear Harry yelling. They go in and they're like, how can we help? And Harry yells at her. And she's like, you don't need to talk to me like that. And I think that that is fair, right? Like even in an emergency situation to be like, no, we're not talking to each other like that, but keep talking. Whereas Luna's, I'm like, we don't need your just like observations here right now. (laughs) 
And so I just want to bless Jenny for simultaneously being helpful but maintaining her boundaries and, like, not distracting from the mission, not, like, wasting time in a moment of distress, but, like, still demanding some, like, basic respect. I just love that she's, like, direct without dwelling. She, I think, is maybe more than any other character wise. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Totally. She's great. Who would you like to bless? I want to bless Harry. I so resonate with what's happening to him in this chapter, that sense of you see a pattern, you know something is happening. I often act too quickly, either through excitement or, you know, just wanting to act because not acting is so painful. And we see that throughout this chapter. Any delay to Harry is is more pain on on Sirius, which means more pain for Harry. So for any of us who, you know, are impulsive to a fault or act too quickly or don't do a full 360 degree scan of the logic system, this blessing is for you. And and to hopefully, you know, listen to the Hermione's in our life who are helping us see that bigger picture because chances are there's value in what they have to offer. So a blessing for Harry. I accept your blessing. <laughs> the Hermione in my life. Oh, no, I accept your blessing as the Harry who's like, <laughs> we got to go. Got to go. Where are we going? I don't know, but we got to. <laughs> Ariana is Hermione. Oh, there it is. You and I are both Harry. <laughs> We're like, nope, things need to happen. And she's like, can we figure out what needs to happen? We're like, no, no, we can't. Let's- Talk to creature. <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about this episode. Or come and join the hundreds of amazing people supporting us on Patreon. It makes all the difference. You can leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and we hope to see you very soon at one of our live shows. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 33, Fight and Flight, through the theme of Inheritance. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions, executive produced by Ariana Nettleman, with editing support from Ariana Martinez. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are a proud part of Night Vale Presents. Our voicemail this week is from Leah Holleran. We'd like to thank, as always, Julia Argy, Maggie Needham, Danny Agan, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next week. See you, friends. Flu power. Can I? Flu powder powder. Flu powder powder. <laughs> flu power. Flu power. <laughs> That's what I say when everyone's getting sick. Flu power. Flu power. <laughs> I like the idea of like um like a team of animated people yeah. <laughs> all yeah. named oh. Flu. Oh. And they're like Flu, flu power. power. Oh, I was thinking like all different diseases. <laughs> and it's like today it's Flu power. <laughs> Venereal disease. <laughs> <laughs> the common cold. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> no, doesn't have skills. The, sna- the sniffles. The sniffles. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> Poor sniffles. Sniffles.